Good morning. I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on. And today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Now, if you're not familiar with where Revelation's located, I'm going to put a graphic on the screen behind me and uh, kind of help you find it. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, so it's pretty easy to find. Uh, just go to the back and until you find Revelation. Uh, now, we're also in the Bible app. If you've got the Version Bible app downloaded on your device, uh, you can go and follow the directions that are on the screen and follow along with today's passages and uh, the sermon notes. Uh, and there are questions in there and announcements and all sorts of stuff that you can go and find uh, by, by searching for us in the Bible app. Now, there are numbers strewn throughout our society. If I said the words 13 stripes and 50 stars, everyone in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? As red-blooded Americans. We know exactly when I say 13 stripes and 50 stars, I'm referring to the American flag. And the fact of the matter is, is those numbers connect with us because of our culture. If I said the words seven, uh, 24, 7, 365, most of you in this room know that I'm referring to the passage of time. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, right? There are numbers woven in through our culture as Americans. And I've alluded to the fact that numbers are woven also in through the book of Revelation, through the whole Bible, as a matter of fact. Every time you see numbers, or most of the time that you see numbers in the Old and New Testament, there is a deeper connection to the listing of that number. There's a deeper meaning. But Revelation especially, when we see numbers, uh, any set of numbers in the book of Revelation, there is almost always a deeper symbolic connection to that number. In today's passage in Revelation 11, we're going to see some numbers. We're going to see some sets of numbers that are kind of confusing when you think about them. We'll, we'll talk about that as we get there. So let's take our Bibles and let's look at Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Now, as you're looking for Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 1, let me give you a recap, uh, as we always do, because I want to make sure that if you have, if you've missed a Sunday, that you're not missing something or that you're not sure where we're at in the, the progression of this book. Revelation 1, John sees a vision of heaven. He goes to heaven and he gets to see Jesus again. And he has a conversation and Jesus tells him uh, all of these things about himself. And then in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus tells John, I want you to give these seven letters to these seven churches. And he dictates these seven letters to John. And then in chapters 4 and 5, John is taken into the throne room of God in heaven. And he sees the structure and the heavenly beings that are in the throne room worshiping God. And then we find in chapter 5 that God is holding a scroll in his right hand. God the Father sitting on the throne is holding a scroll. And 
One of the angels in the throne room says, who can take the scroll? And no one is found worthy to take the scroll from God's hand. And John starts to weep. He gets sad about that. Because someone needs to take the scroll and open it and see what it says. And one of the elders, who's, if you read chapter 4, there are 24 elders who are circling the throne and worshiping God on his throne. One of these elders walks up to John and bumps him and says, John, 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 don't weep. There's no reason to cry. Look. And he said, I heard him say, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns and he sees the lamb slain, the redemption of our sins. And so then Jesus comes along. He is the lion and the lamb. He takes the scroll and he begins opening the seals that keep the scroll closed. And every time he breaks a seal open, something comes out of it. Something happens as a result. And then out of the seventh seal come these seven angels with seven trumpets. And and every time they blow one of the trumpets, something happens. Now, we have come to the point where the seventh trumpet is about to be blown. So look with me in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it was given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So John is giving, given a measuring rod. Gentlemen, it's like John's given a measuring tape. And he's told, go measure these parts of the temple and the people in the temple. And so he goes and me- he, he, he follows those directions. Now, this is directly pointing back. Remember, everything in Revelation is pointing back to something in the Old Testament or something that Jesus did or said. This passage is directly pointing back to Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. In that section of Ezekiel, an angel measures various parts of the temple and, and the furniture in the temple, the components of the temple. And if you read Ezekiel 40 through 48, it is a prophecy about God establishing his protection for the people who will follow him. If you read through those eight chapters, that section of Ezekiel is telling us that God is establishing the protecting of his people. You see, the the temple, when you think symbolically, what is the temple? The temple in the Old Testament was the dwelling place of God, right? It was the place where God's presence would come and dwell. If you go back to the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was literally like his seat. But what else was the temple? The temple was the place where God connected with us, right? And so, The temple symbolically is God's presence and his connection to us in his presence. Now, we're also going to see at the, towards the end of the book of Revelation, there's another measuring. It's a measuring of the city of God. And in that situation, the angel comes along and measures the city of God. And it's talking about, it's alluding to the fact The city of God is after everything's done and we're in heaven. There's a new creation 
And in chapter 21, it's the part where God is establishing his eternal protection and provision for all of us as followers of Jesus. And so this measuring is very, very symbolic. So think about these reference points for a moment. John is told to go and measure the temple and its people. And so God is telling us as followers of Jesus, I'm about to do something that involves my presence and my connection to you. And so that leads me to today's big idea. Uh, This is the idea, the main point of today's message. And I want you to take it and think about it. And that idea is simply this. God's presence provides and protects. His very presence provides for you and protects you. You remember the old cartoons where the mouse would be fighting the cat and the cat all of a sudden would shrink away from this tiny little mouse and and get incredibly scared. And then the, the cartoon camera would pan out a little bit and there's the big bulldog standing behind the mouse. Remember that, that, that cartoon? God is the bulldog. His very presence in your life keeps you protected. There's nothing, if Jesus is within you, if his Holy Spirit is inside of you, there is nothing that can touch you. He will provide and protect you spiritually. And let me be very clear. I'm not saying that if you have Jesus that all of your needs will be met. And you will be wealthy and you'll never get sick. I'm not saying that because that's not biblical. But God's presence inside of you will always hold and protect you spiritually. If God's got you in his hand, who can take you out of his hand? If he's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, perfect in every way, and there's no other being in all the universe that comes even close to any of those things, if God has you in his hands and he's all those things, how could anything or anybody take you out of his hand? If you belong to Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, he will spiritually provide and protect you. And that's what the measuring of the temple here in these first two verses of Revelation 11 are all about. John is measuring the dwelling place of God and the connection point between God and us, showing that God is establishing us and providing and protecting us in that. And let me just ask, do you have the presence of God in your life? In other words, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in everything that Jesus is, everything he came and did, that he died for you on a cross to rescue, to save you from your sins, that he rose again on the third day, and that without him, because you and I and every person ever born on this planet other than Jesus himself, because we are all sinners, we need that rescuing 
We need that saving from our sins. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't save ourselves from our sins. We need somebody. And that somebody is Jesus. Do you have that in your life? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you committed your life to him so that God can provide and protect for you? That's the question this morning. If you're sitting there today and, and you're not sure if you have Jesus in your life, or maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, I- I've never come to that place where I've placed my trust and my commitment to him because of the, what I believe about him. If you've never come to that place or you're unsure, I, I want you to respond today. Fill out a connect card. We'll we'll have an altar time at the end of the service and you can come forward and talk to one of our elders. Come see me out in the foyer. But if you're not sure about where you are in your belief with Jesus, come talk to somebody. Connect, reach out to one of us. So now we've got this next section. Look with me now at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now we'll get to the witnesses here in just a minute. But we've already seen two number references at the end of verse 2 and in the middle uh, or towards the end of verse 3. We've seen 42 months and 1,260 days. Now these are direct references again, Old Testament Don't read Revelation with a newspaper next to you. Read Revelation with your Old Testament open next to you. Because John is making direct references to Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 12. Daniel gives us lots of numbers if you've ever read that book. But 42 uh, months is three and a half years. Okay? Are you with me so far? Crunch the numbers in your head. 42 months equals three and a half years. 1,260 days is roughly three and a half years as well. And so these numbers, three and a half years, three and a half days, reoccur throughout this chapter and partly through the rest of the book of Revelation. But 42 And three and a half were really important numbers to the Jewish nation at this time, to the Jewish people. Let me give you some instances. Numbers 33. So go back to your Old Testament. First five books of the Bible are called the Torah. Numbers is one of those first five books. It tells of creation and God's first people and how they're uh, rescued from slavery in Egypt. And then they come into the promised land, but they wander for a little while before that happens. Well, the wandering in the desert, if you read Numbers 33, it tells us that the number of months, or the number of years that they wandered in the desert was what? 42. 42 months, 42 years wandering in the desert. If you read Luke chapter 4, you're going to read a reference to Elijah in the Old Testament. And Elijah, one of the things he did, he was this great prophet in the Old Testament. He's actually considered the greatest of prophets other than Moses. And Elijah confronted a really wicked king of that day and age named Ahab. And he told Ahab, God is passing judgment on you. And the way he's going to signal this is he's going to send a time of drought 
where there will be no rain. Do you know how long that drought lasted? 42 months. Luke chapter 4 tells us specifically it was 42 months. Three and a half years. If you look at the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there was 400 years in that span of time. And during one of those time periods in that in-between time between Old and New Testament, there was this horrific foreign king that took over Israel and conquered it and ruled it. But do you know how long he ruled it? Three and a half years, 42 months. Three and a half years, the Jews suffered under the Syrian tyrant Antichus Epiphanes. So, out of that, when they were redeemed, rescued from his ruling, and became independent again, the number 42, or three and a half years, became a set-in-stone symbol to Jewish people about unrestrained evil because of what they endured under under Antichus uh, Epiphanes. Let me give you the last few. Three and a half, the time frame for the witnesses that we're going to see in these coming verses. And then in a coming passage next week, we're going to talk about this woman that is persecuted by Satan. And do you know how long her persecution is? Three and a half. So 42, three and a half, these are reoccurring numbers throughout the Old and New Testament. And we're seeing it repeated here at the very beginning of the book of Revelation chapter 11. Now, let me speak momentarily for just a moment about calculating dates and times from this perspective. So there have been people who have sat down with the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and all of these prophecies that give numbers. It's gonna happen in this many weeks and years and blah, 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 blah. And they've calculated out, okay, this is how that would have worked. And they've looked at calendars and, and calculated it all. And there are always little problems. Things don't quite line up. And here's why. Today, in the modern world, we have a unified calendar for the most part. Everybody runs off the same calendar. February has 28 days. 29 on a leap year. The month we're in, the month of May, has its set number of days. Every month on our calendar is set, and we've had the luxury of having this calendar for hundreds of years. And so when I say the 28th of February, everybody goes, okay, in my mind, I can picture or I can think of the time passing through the month of February. February comes after January, and after February is March. We, we just think that way. The people of John's day and age did not have that luxury. They did not have a set calendar that all peoples of the Roman Empire agreed on. As a matter of fact, from the time of Daniel all the way until a few decades after John, there were three calendars that all the different people groups of the Roman Empire and various empires used. Some were lunar calendars based off the passage of the moon, you know, its phases around the earth. Some were solar calendars, and one was a hodgepodge of it. And so Daniel, if you look at the book of Daniel and you start calculating out everything, 
you're actually going to find that Daniel's borrowing from two separate calendars to calculate out the coming of Jesus. Why am I telling you this? Some of you are like, this is boring. Okay, they didn't have a unified calendar. Whoop-dee! Why am I telling you this? Because if you are listening or you're reading somebody who says, I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that these are the calendar calculations to end up with these days and this date, and this year, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not talking about the various calendars. They're using our modern calendar. That person has not done their research. And they know nothing about how time was calculated in the Old and New Testament. Because it was dramatically different than the way it's done today. So why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this to tell you if you're listening to someone who's figured out when Jesus is coming and they're using these ideas of our modern calendar, they're probably not someone you need to be listening to because they're not doing the work of unpacking God's word properly. So what does John mean here with 42 months and 1,260 days? I don't know. Let's move on. I say that because of this. There are literally dozens of theories about what these numbers mean. And you can defend all of them with God's word. It's hard to know what Jesus, what God is trying to convey through these specific numbers. We just know that 42 or three and a half years was a symbol to the Jewish people of unrestrained evil. And you're going to see that in the rest of this chapter. We just know. So when you were a Jewish person and you heard the end of verse 2 and the end of verse 3, and you heard 42, 1260, when you heard those numbers, you automatically thought in your mind, unrestrained evil's coming. Something bad is going to happen because evil is going to have some some. Uh, uh, given a little bit of time to do their work, okay? So that's all we know. That's all we can tell you. Let's move on. Revelation verse three. I'm gonna read it again because we're gonna go through verse six. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Verse four. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So he's pointing back to the two witnesses that were mentioned in verse 3. Now look at verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of prophesying. Wait, didn't we just talk about no rain falling? He is making a direct reference to Elijah here. These witnesses will come in the power of Elijah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Let's keep going. Middle of verse 6. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Wait, what does that sound like? When have we seen in the Old Testament that somebody struck the waters and it turned to blood? And there came all sorts of plagues. Where do we see that? Moses, in the book of Exodus, as judgment against the Egyptians and the false gods that they worshiped. Okay, so we're hearing that these two witnesses will have the power to pass judgment 
on the ungodly idols of the world and those who follow those idols and try to go against God's word that these two witnesses are saying. So this is a direct witness to Zechariah chapter 4. If you were to go read Zechariah chapter 4, it talks about this angel who comes along. And these, there are these angels that come along. And these angels are two olive branches, which is the reference we saw in verse 4. And they stand before the two branches of the lampstand in the temple, which again we see in verse 4. So what or who are these two witnesses? Well, what we know is that they come to testify, to tell people about Jesus. They're witnesses. They're the ones who are coming to testify, to witness to the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection to save anyone who would believe in him. And so they've come to testify. They embody the power of Moses and Elijah. And if you don't know, Moses and Elijah are the quintessential representatives of the Old Testament. They're the guys that, when you look back, Jesus has this transfiguration moment on a mount. And who appears with him? Moses and Elijah. Because they represent all of the Old Testament. So they represent these two. Now, some have thought that these two witnesses are actually like two individual people. That could be the case. Symbolically, it could also represent the people of God and the witness that the people of God, the church, will have. Both interpretations are pretty valid. I will tell you right now, I lean toward these two witnesses actually being symbolically representing us as the followers of Jesus. Uh, reason I, I kind of think that is the lampstand reference here references back to the lampstands that we see in chapter one. And what do the what do the lampstands symbolize? They symbolize the church, the people, the followers of God. So I lean towards that, but again, you could go either way. But no matter whether they're two individual people who will come and tell people about Jesus, or whether it's supposed to be symbolically the church that tells people about Jesus, one way or the other, what's the message? We're supposed to be telling people about Jesus, right? The whole point of the two witnesses is that we're supposed to be going out and telling people about the life-changing hope of Jesus. But the point of this is to remind us that telling people about Jesus is not going to be easy. The world's going to drift further and further away from him. And as it does, telling people about Jesus will come with more and more persecution. So, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So this beast comes. Now we're going to see the beast later on in the book of Revelation. And he is Satan. He's the enemy. He's the adversary. So he's going to come and he's going to attack either these two individuals and or the church itself. But then you're going to read, if you keep reading this passage, three and a half days later. Wait, where have we heard three and a half? 
repeatedly already, right? Three and a half days later, three and a half being a representation of unrestrained evil. After that three and a half days, guess what? The two witnesses rise from the dead. And from heaven, God calls them up into heaven. He literally says, come up here. And so this, I think, is telling us that there's going to be a time when talking about Jesus will almost guarantee you incredible persecution. And no matter what happens, no matter how bleak things look, there's always going to be redemption, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. We will, as followers of Jesus, have eternity with Jesus. But guys, don't be mistaken. Things are going to get hard. Now look with me in verse 12. Then they heard the loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. There's going to be a time, no matter what happens to the church, no matter what happens to any of us as individual followers of Jesus, there will come a time when God will redeem everything. If you read ahead to the end of Revelation, he creates a new earth. And we get new bodies. And we live eternally in perfection in the presence of God. Remember the big idea. God's presence provides and protects. So let's wrap this up. Look with me in verse 14. The second woe has passed. So this is, if you think back to last week, this means the sixth trumpet has been blown and what comes from it is the second woe he says the second woe is past behold the third woe is to come verse 15 then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven now stop right there every time we've seen a trumpet blown horrific terrible life destroying things have come from that trumpet but look at what comes from the seventh trumpet and there, was a loud there were loud voices from heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great or both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the Ark of the Covenant was seen within the temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The proclamation of the seventh trumpet is not a woe to the followers of Jesus. It is glorification for the followers of Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is not a good scenario for you. 
because God's kingdom belongs to his followers. And so the proclamation of the seventh trumpet is a reference to the end where we see God's ultimate forever and ever victory. But there's no woe here for us. Because remember, God provides and God protects. And the end of the account, the end of the story for us, is that we get to be with God. We get perfect bodies. We get to live eternally in perfection with Him. Please hear me. Go back to the two witnesses. Things are going to get rough before they get better. And we need to be prepared for that. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I would argue theologically that one of the things the Lord's Supper calls us to is to help remind us of God's presence. Think about the symbolism that we remember with the Lord's Supper. What's the symbolism? We eat the bread, and the bread reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us, right? And we drink the cup, and we remember that Jesus shed his blood to save us and put us under a new covenant where we can be rescued from our sins and declared innocent by the blood of Jesus. If everything in our lives was destroyed, the blood of Jesus would be enough for us. The blood of Jesus is provision. It is protection. Because once you belong to God, nothing can snatch you away from him. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can be here and recognize what you've done to provide for us and protect us spiritually. That we can be saved from our sins. Lord, we pray that as we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that you would help us to remember what you've done for us. How much you have given out of your love for us. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would ask the deacons who are going to assist with the Lord's Supper to go ahead and come down. Uh, We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now. And let me just tell you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us today. But what's about to happen is the the deacons are going to pass around these trays. These trays are going to be passed down the pew in front of you. And as it comes in front of you, uh, you'll notice inside uh, each of these trays, there is a stack of two cups. So as it comes by, pull out the the stack of two cups. In the top cup is the juice and the bottom cup is the bread. And if you need some help, if you struggle to to grab those two cups out of the tray, uh, please just wave to the deacon that's at the end of your row and he'll come by and help you, give you some assistance with that. But I want you to hold on to these as everything is dispersed. And then the deacons are going to come back forward and get the elements themselves. And then I will guide us into the celebrating of the Lord's Supper. We'll all do it together. So will you join me in prayer as we move into celebrating this together? Lord, we thank you again. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the love that Jesus has for us. The love that is so immense 
so unbounded, unlimited in all of its ways, that love that died on a cross to rescue us from our sins. And then three days later rose from the grave, declaring victory over that sin. Lord, we pray that as we celebrate this this morning, that we would remember all that you've done for us. We would remember Jesus today. We thank you and we pray this in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Deacons, you can take the elements. come forward.
on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he had a Passover meal with his followers. And during that meal, he took a piece of bread, he blessed it and he broke it and he passed it around to them. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup, he blessed it, and he passed it around. And he said, this is my blood shed for you for a new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is, what he has done, and the salvation that he brings into our lives. We pray that in everything we do, in the coming days, weeks, months, that we would point people to the life-changing hope that can only be found in Jesus. Use us to bring Jesus to those who do not know you. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.